So I am teaching tonight on John 6, 7, and 8. And you're like, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, there's a lot. And they have like, like 70 verses in all of them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like fly over it and not mention like most of the stuff in there. So just deal with it. I, I feel a little bad about that, but not really because I don't know what else to do. Just go read it sometime. Uh, but I don't have like an intro for you because we're just gonna we're gonna dig right into it, okay? Because we've only got so much time. So, flip open your Bibles to John. We're gonna start in John six. And so, at Salt Company, we care about the Bible and everything we say. We want to like be in line with the Bible, and so we want you guys following along. So whether you have a physical Bible or you've got it on your phone or whatever, we've got Bibles for you. If you want one, we'd love to give you a Bible, but follow along with us. So essentially. Jesus is just going to do a bunch of miracles and John is going to like fly through it really fast like nothing happened and it's hilarious, but he's just going to, you know, like multiply food for 20,000 people and walk on water. No big deal. All right. So let's, let's read about that. John chapter six, I'm going to start in verse five, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had been eaten. Okay. It was like a sneaky miracle. Right, like it's, it's just, he, he writes this like, oh, they're just kind of moving along and Jesus is like, all right, just have people sit down. Let's just start feeding them some food. And then all of a sudden it says 5,000 men, but there was women and children there, like people that are smarter than I am, like calculate how many people they think there were there. They think there was like 20,000 people. So all of a sudden 20,000 people have eaten everything that they wanted out of like a couple barley loaves from this kid and a few fish. And, and this is like, this is what Jesus is, is trying to say to the crowd and he's trying to say to us. One, he's just trying to say like, um, I'm God, right? Like, I don't know about you, I can't turn bread into 20,000 loaves or like whatever the, heck the, whatever the heck it was, right? That's something that God does. So he's saying, I'm God, but he's saying something else. He's saying this. He's looking at the crowd and he's saying, I can satisfy your soul. Okay, so in a little bit later, he's going to talk about how he is the bread of life. What does bread do? It sustains and satisfies. And he's saying, I'm the only one that can sustain your soul. And, and I want you to, I'm not going to unpack this, but I want you to see some of the compassion of Jesus in this moment. So, so here's like the context of this. Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away to rest because these crowds have been like bombarding them all over the place. But in the middle of trying to get away from people, this mob of people literally chases him down. And instead of ignoring them, he walks up to them and he starts teaching. But not only does he start teaching, but he observes their physical needs and he figures out how to provide for them. Look, Jesus cares about the stuff in your life. Like the big stuff, the little stuff, Jesus cares. 
He has compassion on them. And he can satisfy your soul. Now, that's what we talked about last week. All right, so I'm not going to kind of land there. But there's something else that he's saying that I think he wants to say specifically to the disciples. Okay, so this is how this story goes. Is, is there's this crowd of people that needs to be fed. And, and the text says that Jesus knew what he was about to do. Right, but instead of just doing it, what does he do? Look back at it. He grabs Philip, his disciple. And he says, hey, Philip, there's 20,000 people that need to be fed. What should we do about it? And Philip's like, uh, I don't know. Why are you talking to me, Jesus? But here's why. Here's why he asked Philip. It's because he wanted Philip to believe. He was looking for a response out of him. And this was the response that he was looking for is, Jesus, you're the son of God. I've watched you perform miracle after miracle. I've, I've watched you authenticate yourself as the coming Messiah. I believe that you can do whatever you want. And so I can't do a thing about all these people that are hungry, but you can. I believe. But what does Philip do instead? He takes a look around at the circumstances. He sees the massive need and the problem that it's creating. He sees his limited resources, and he gives up. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? Like, the, the supernatural works of God should produce in us supernatural faith. But aren't we kind of more like Philip than we are like Jesus? Like, doesn't it sound familiar in your life that you see a problem in the world or you see an issue in your life that you would love for God to solve, but you look at that problem and it seems too big for you and you don't have a clue what to do about it. You don't have a clue how to solve it. And so you take stock of the issue and you look at your limited resources and instead of having faith, instead of trusting him and declaring who he is, you back away and you give up. Okay, so this is, this is what the Christian life is. It's that decision point over and over and over again about whether you will believe that Jesus is actually as good and strong as he says he is. Whether you will actually act on that belief. Okay, so have you ever seen a dad with his kid at the pool, right? So picture like, picture a little kid and they're like standing on the edge of the pool and they're freaked out. Okay, so this kid doesn't know how to swim. So if he jumps in, he's going to drown. So this is actually a dire situation for him. But what does the dad do? He stands in the pool and he holds up his, his arms and he says, jump, I've got you. So that kid takes that step back and he runs and he jumps off the edge into the pool. Is he trusting in his own abilities? No, he knows he can't swim. What's he doing? He's seeing that his father is strong and that he's good. And he's believing him when he says, I've got you. Now, if that kid stands on the edge of the pool and is just terrified and doesn't ever jump, it's actually not only exposing his weakness, but it's dishonoring to his dad. Because what that message is communicating is, hey, I don't trust you. I don't actually know if you're good enough or strong enough to catch me. So this is the Christian life. As you're standing on that edge, 
and you don't, you can't carry yourself, like you can't swim, and God's in the pool holding his hands up saying jump, and if you jump, he catches you, and he puts you right back up the ledge, and then he moves back a little bit further, and he's like, hey, I want you to jump, and you jump, he puts you back up on the ledge, he, puts, he moves back a little bit further, and he asks you to jump, because he wants to know, do you trust me? Now, here's the thing. We all want to live for something bigger than ourselves, right? Like, like none of us want to live for sort of small, meaningless, insignificant lives. But here's the observation that I'm seeing in me and that I'm seeing in us, is that when given the chance to live for something bigger than you, to, to, to see a problem in the world, to see somebody who needs to know Jesus, to see someone who could use your help, to see an issue that you want to solve, a campus that you want to see change, the city that you want to see transformed. When you have the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than you, we shy away from it in fear. Because we're actually more focused on our own weakness than we are on the strength of the Father. And so we're not sure how to believe and so I want to I wanna look at John 6 through 8 through this lens of belief and doubt. Okay, so there's a lot of things in there. There's a lot of ways we can look at, so I want to acknowledge that. But there's a lot in here about what it looks like to believe in Jesus, what it looks like to jump over and over again in your life into his arms. And I want to look at the difference between that and doubt. And, and here's what I want you to know before I get into this. This is for everybody. Okay, so, so if you're there and you're saying like, look, I, I don't really doubt that much. Like I trust Jesus, I believe in him. Okay, yeah. There's like those macro doubts where you're not sure if he exists or not, not and that's some of you in this room. But there's also the day-to-day stuff where you wake up and you've got the opportunity to choose whether you believe that God is going to be good to you that day or not. Where you're presented with an option to sin and whether you're going to choose whether you believe Jesus that he knows what's best for you or not. Every day of your life, you're constantly making decisions about whether you will believe or whether you have doubt. And so this is for you. All right, and so this is where we're going. I want to talk first about true and false disciples. Then second, that Satan is a liar but that Jesus can set you free. And third, the hour of proof that has come. The hour of proof that has come. All right, so first one, true and false disciples. Okay, so right after Jesus talks about the bread, he teaches some weird stuff. Okay, I'm not gonna get into that. You can read it your own, try and figure it out. If you've got questions about it, come talk to me. But he teaches some weird stuff and the people are freaked out by it. And there's gonna be two vastly different responses to the same teaching. So look at this, chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? I love this answer. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there's a group of people that hear the same teaching, but they have vastly different responses. The, the large percentage of this crowd hears Jesus' teaching, and when he's done kind of putting on the show that they wanted, kind of doing the miracles that they wanted, and he actually gets down to how they should follow him, they take off. They're not interested. 
But there's this small group of guys that when Jesus turns to them and say, hey, like these, all of these people are walking past them to leave Jesus forever. And Jesus says, are you guys going to go too? And they're like, Jesus, where would we go? Like, I don't have anything else besides this. You have the words of life. Now, here's something I want you to pay attention to. I want you to see this. The reason why they had different responses to Jesus is not because one group of them had all of the answers and the other group didn't. Okay, so I guarantee you the disciples were really confused and freaked out too because that's what they're like through like all of the gospels. They're constantly confused. Peter is an idiot, okay? And we all are too. I'm an idiot too, so I'm not just bagging on Peter. He's a representation of us. Okay, I guarantee you they're confused, So it's not that they had the answers and the other one didn't. It was that one group believed that Jesus was actually who he says he was and they were willing to believe that even when they didn't fully understand. Okay, so I want you to catch this. What does it mean to be a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus? The mark of a true disciple is belief when they do not fully understand. Okay, so some of you in this room, you're experiencing doubts. Okay, and that, and that can look a lot different. For some of you, that's like, that's intellectual doubts. You don't know if you can trust the Bible. You don't know if you believe that Jesus actually was who he says he was if he rose from the dead. But that's not the only type of doubt there is. Some of you are struggling to believe that God is good to you that he actually is going to provide for you, that he's actually going to walk through life with you. Some of you are seeing the suffering and the pain and the evil in this world, and you just can't reconcile that with a good God. Some of you, maybe it's not as much intellectual, but it's, it's what you feel that, that, that when you wake up, even though you know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you feel separated from him. And so you doubt the fact that Jesus can actually, forget, actually forgive you. And so there's different types of doubts. And I want you to know that being a Christian is not about never having doubts. It's not about never feeling like you don't want to follow God. Being a Christian is choosing to trust Jesus more than you trust your doubts. It's fighting to believe what is true even when you don't want to, even when you don't feel like it's true. And so here's what you need to know in order to keep fighting. You need to know that Satan's a liar, but that Jesus wants to set you free. So flip over to chapter 8. We're going to pretend like I taught on chapter 7. I'm going to like reference it loosely later. We're just going to go to chapter 8, all right? So Satan's a liar, but Jesus can set you free. Okay, so this is... This is the the main thing that I want you to see, and we're going to get to that whole Satan is a liar thing, but I want you to see this, that what is natural for you is not always what's good for you, okay? What's natural for you is not always what's good for you. So there, there is a significant rivalry in this city, okay? And it's not Vikings Packers. It's not the University of Minnesota versus the University of Iowa, I hate the Hawks. I hope we beat them in basketball. But it's not either of those things. Here's the rivalry. The rivalry is between me and all bikers. Okay? 
but but not not like like to clarify, not like uh, like motorcyclists. Not I'm not that intense. I would not get in a rivalry with them. Like bicyclists, and I know that some of you in this room are bikers. All right, like we're fine. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. I'm glad you're here. Okay, but here's my rivalry with bikers began. is one of the first times I came up to the city. We were shooting like a video, like as a vision casting for the church plan, and we we're shooting it on like the Stone Arch Bridge, like close to downtown. And I may or may not have been standing in the middle of the bike lane to shoot the video. Did I know that there was a bike lane there? No. And these bikers were jerks. They're rolling past me. They're yelling at me. One dude cussed me out. And I get it. You're like, you were in the bike lane, dude. I'm like, yeah, but you guys aren't nice. Like, this is just mean. Right? And bikers, here's the thing. When you're walking, they cut you off. When you're driving, they think they don't have to, like, apply to the rules of the road. Like, they can just do whatever the heck they want. So this is, this is, this is my desire, my innate desire, a lot of the times when I see people on bikes. I want to get a stick. <laughs> and, and I want to stand there and kind of hide the stick. And as they're riding past, I want to take that stick and I want to jam it into the wheel so that they flip over the bike. That's what I desire. Now, yeah, I know you guys are horrified. You're like, you are a terrible person. <laughs> Look, don't even pretend like you don't have messed up desires, all right? Like, you know you think about that stuff every once in a while. Like, like Keturah has probably never thought about that, but the rest of you have, okay? And here's the thing. I'm not actually going to do that. I've never actually done that to a biker, okay? Why? Because I know that that's not a good idea, okay? So maybe you're not like that evil as me, but maybe you have a desire to not go to class, not eat or sleep, and just play Fortnite for 48 hours straight. Now, you might have that desire, but hopefully you know that that's a terrible idea, right? So, so here's my point. You have all kinds of desires in life, that things that, that you want to do that come naturally to you, but you know that they're a bad idea, so you try to not do them, right? But here's the thing that, that I've observed, that for some reason, when it comes to your thinking, when it comes to your, to your intellect, when it comes to your feelings, what you, what you kind of believe and feel to be true about the world, for some reason... We don't filter that at all. We just wholesale accept whatever we think to be true or feel to be true. Okay, so, so if some of you have this like self-talk in your head all the time and you get super down on yourself and so you hear this stuff like, I suck, I can't do this. Like, I don't have any friends. Oh, whatever that is for you, you have this negative narrative in your head and for some reason... You don't filter that at all. You just whole accept that as truth. Or maybe you're the other way around. Maybe you're really proud. And so you walk in the room and you compare yourself to other people and you think, man, I'm kind of great. This is, you know, I'm awesome. I'm doing well. And you don't ever stop to think whether that is actually true or not whether that's actually accurate to Jesus' depiction of the world, or, or maybe you have those intellectual doubts, like a good God would never let that happen, and so you just assume that that is true instead of asking questions about it. So, so here's what I want you to see. Here's why that is dangerous. is because Satan is a murderer and a liar, and he's influenced what you think and feel to be true. Chapter 8, verse 44. 
You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Okay, so Satan is a liar, and he's really good at it. Okay, like, like every single human being that's ever existed has fallen for his view of the world. He's got a perfect track record of convincing us that what he is saying is true. And, and here's what I mean by that. I'm not talking about like Satan himself is like talking to you specifically. But this is what I mean, that he set up our culture, our flesh, our race to believe that things that are not true about God. That in the beginning, he corrupted human beings. And ever since, we've had this fallen nature, this corrupted nature that doesn't know what's true about the world. And he's trying to convince us to doubt God, to distrust him. Okay, so imagine you had a disease that like changed the chemistry in your brain to convince you that two plus two is five or to convince you that, that red is actually blue or that you can actually pull off a visor if you wear one. <laughs> Cole can, but nobody else can. Okay, like more often than not, what you think is natural, what you feel is natural is actually wrong. Okay, you've been influenced by evil to doubt what's actually true, that God is real, that he wants to set you free, that he wants good for you, that he's only asking of you what you can give, that he's patient with you, that he's gracious towards you. Satan wants to cloud all of that and make you believe something different. And here's why he wants to do that is because he wants to enslave you. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Like, catch that. You, you can't, like, mess around with this stuff. Like, some of you think of sin as this kind of cute little puppy on a leash. Like, yeah, it's there and it makes a mess. And, and, but, but you kind of think that it's, it's like, cute and, like, you can control it and it's kind of fun. Look, you can't control sin. It controls you. And when you sin, okay, it's like a, it's like a fly flying into a spider web and getting caught. And the more you struggle to get out, the, the, the more caught inside of the web you're going to get. You get stuck. You can't get out. And the end result is that he wants to kill you. He wants to kill your spiritual life. Everything about you that's good, he wants to pull out of your life. That's what it means when it says that he's been a murderer from the beginning. And so I need you to see Satan's plan here in the world and in your life. He hardwired doubt and lack of faith and self-dependence and pride in your own abilities into you so that you would, one, doubt the goodness of God to you, two, run to sin to become addicted to it, and three, ultimately die in your sins. That's the path that he wants you to follow and that some of you are following. And that's actually what's natural for you now. Okay, so yes, Satan wants to kill you, but Jesus can set you free. Here's what'll happen. Here, here's what's true. Jesus wants to release you from all of those negative influences in your life. 
Okay, so chapter 8, verse 31. I think I've got this one on the screens, if I remember right. Chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to kind of skip down to 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus wants to set you free. But here's what you need to know. Like, like what is freedom? Because I think typically we think of freedom as essentially just getting to do whatever you want. But real freedom is learning to live within the bounds of what's good for you. Okay, so, so think about this like in the context of marriage. Okay, so when you go to make vows to someone, when you promise to be with someone forever, you're sacrificing a bunch of your quote-unquote freedom. Okay, so you're sacrificing your ability to date other people, to sleep around with other people. You're, you're sacrificing your time. You're sacrificing your ability to be selfish with your life. And now you're going to give your life to serving and helping someone else. You're sacrificing your, you're, you're doing all of that stuff. Why? Well, because laying that stuff down, putting those boundaries around marriage actually enables you to be free. It gives you the freedom to have a healthy and thriving relationship. The boundaries that are put around it is the very thing that allows you to experience what you want to experience in that relationship. And freedom in Christ is not about getting to do or believe whatever you want, but teaching yourself to live within the bounds of what's true, to actually believe what's real. Okay, so let me give you a couple quick hits on how to do that. And I'll kind of come back to this a little bit, but a couple quick hits. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Not in like the weird way. Don't like actually talk to yourself out loud. People are going to think you're crazy. Okay, but you have this, this narrative in your head that you believe. And it's filled with things that aren't true about God and they aren't true about you. And if you just accept those things, you're going to walk through life separated from God by your unbelief. And so instead of just listening to whatever narrative is happening in your mind, start speaking truth back to it. When you feel discouraged, remind yourself that Jesus is always with you and that he'll never leave you. When you feel condemned, remind yourself that Jesus was condemned so that you don't have to be condemned. When you feel proud, remind yourself that you crucified the Son of God, that, that you participated in that by your sin. Speak truth back into those lies. Second one, doubt your doubts. So I don't have time to fully unpack this, but be as critical of your secular faith as you are of your spiritual faith. So here's, here's what I mean by that, is for some of you, the, the, the spiritual worldview, even the miraculous, like we're talking about here, about Jesus walks on water in chapter six. He, he produces enough food for all these people. That stuff is hard for you to believe. And so you start to doubt that and you think, man, that can't be real. But do you apply that same criteria to the naturalist viewpoint? Because the naturalist explanation of the world actually is a terrible explanation of the world. And if you put it to the same critiques in the same categories that you put your Christianity under, you might find actually that Christianity does pretty well. When you think how could a good God allow that to happen? Ask yourself, like, where did you even get your definition of good? Who gave you the right to define what good and bad is? Because Jesus has defined it in his word, 
And thousands, and, and if not millions of people throughout time have actually believed that God knows what he's doing in suffering. That he's not kind of losing it, he's not out of control, but that he actually can bring good out of something terrible. People have believed that forever. Why is your belief better than theirs? Doubt your doubts. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, if you're going to do all of that, if you're going to intentionally live a life where you're choosing to walk away from doubt and into belief, you've got to know that Jesus is trustworthy. Because here, I think you've probably figured this out about Saul Company, but if you haven't, let me tell you. You can't just sort of add Jesus into your life. Like this thing that we're talking about is an all-consuming, all-defining reality in your life. And it's beautiful, and it's awesome, by the way. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I, would, I feel that same thing that the disciples felt of like, even if I somehow was, was convinced or had doubts about who God was, it's like, where would I go? This is all that I have. But if, if you're going to get to that level if you're going to get off of sort of the fringes of Christianity and kind of watching other people do Christianity, if this is actually going to be about you, then you better be convinced that Jesus is reliable and trustworthy. And so how can we believe that he's worth it, that he's trustworthy? That's point three. Jesus' hour of proof has come. Okay, there's several places throughout the book of John, but in particular in chapter seven, where this little phrase Jesus keeps saying, he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. And here's the hour that he's referring to. He's referring to his death on the cross. And so this is what keeps happening is, is he, he stands up in front of crowds and, and the religious leaders who want him dead try and arrest him and they like can't ever do it. They keep screwing it up. He, he sort of just fades back into the distance. Jesus is like 18 steps ahead of everyone because he reads their minds. So he kind of knows what's coming. It's fairly easy for him, right? And he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So here's my question. If Jesus is powerful enough to avoid that crucifixion over and over and over again through the book of John, why does he eventually end up on the cross? Is it because Judas sort of outsmarts him? Is it because the religious leaders finally kind of came up with a good enough plan that they could finally arrest him and kill him? No, Jesus' hour comes because he wanted it to. Because he intentionally walked towards the cross. He went to the cross because he chose it. Here's why. Because it was the only way to get to you. And you were more important to him. Him saving you and inviting you into his life and his presence was more important to him than getting out of the suffering that he knew was coming his way, than being separated from the Father on the cross. It was so important to him that he left heaven to come here, to give his life. He was born to die for you. That's why his hour came, and that's the greatest proof of God's existence and his undeniable trustworthiness, that he didn't use his power to manipulate and abuse, but he used it to empower you. Some of you have authority issues, 
and maybe somewhat rightfully so because you've seen it abused. You've had people hurt you. Jesus has all of the power in the universe. And instead of using that power to demand from you, he leveraged it to support and help you, to give you grace that you never could have had without him. But here's the thing. Some of you are not convinced that that's true either just kind of abstractly, intellectually, or every day when you wake up, you don't know if you actually feel that kind of in the heart of who you are. Here's why, because you're looking for a different kind of proof. You're, you're trying to sort of step back from God and sort of analyze him and come to a nice conclusion about who he is. It's like you're trying to do a, a math proof, right? And if you can just sort of systematically go through the points and you can solve the riddle, then like you're going to figure out who God is. But that's not actually how you discover who God is. Okay, so imagine that there's a small shed in the middle of one of the most beautiful parks that you've ever seen, right? So put it wherever you want. It can be in like Seattle in the mountains or like wherever you want it to be. It's a cool park. There's a small shed in the middle of it. Imagine that there was a boy who had grown up in that shed his entire life. You're like, this is kind of an intense illustration. Well, he's hypothetical, it's fine, all right. So, imagine there's a boy that's lived in that shed his entire life. He's, there's no window, there's only like a few shovels, stuff like that, there's a sink, there's a bathroom, there's a few basic things, but he's never seen the outside. Okay, now imagine you walk in and you sit down across the table from him and you try and tell him about the park that's just right outside. And so you start describing a tree and you're like, man, don't you miss trees? And he's like, I literally don't know, like, what is that? And so you start describing a tree and, and it's, like, it's like 30 times as tall as you. And he's like, well, how would it, how would it fit in the shed then? Like that can't, that can't be real. And you, you try and explain to him what the experience of, of walking on grass barefoot is like, but he doesn't know what grass is. And so you start like cutting out these little shreds of paper and you color it green. And, and he's just like, I, I've never seen anything like this before. Like, I don't think this is real. So what do you do at that point? You say, you know what, come with me. And you open up that door and you walk through the park with him. And you help him experience what's real and what's true. And instead of telling him what walking through the grass is like, he actually takes off his shoes and he touches grass for the first time. And he's amazed by what he sees. Okay, this is what's true of us because of our fallen nature. Is we've been locked in a prison, in a shed of our own sin, in our own misunderstanding of the world. And we've got no idea what the real world is like out there for us what the supernatural world that God lives in is like. And, and God is, is, is trying to explain to us what he's like and what it's like to know him, but we can't get our head around it because we've got no concept of who he is because we've never seen anything like him before. And this is what he did in the crucifixion and the resurrection is he opened the door and he said, I want you to walk out. I want you to experience life with me. Then you'll understand. Then you'll know what this world is like. Then you'll know who I am. So this is what I'm saying. You can't abstractly sort of prove God. You got to experience him personally. But this is what some of you are doing is those shed doors have been thrown wide open and you're sitting at the table still trying to kind of draw a tree and you're measuring it, trying to figure it out. And Jesus is saying, you want to come out? 
You want to come experience life with me and find out what it's like? Stop trying to sort of figure out, put God in your boxes and figure him out and walk out to see him. Get to know him. That's how you can prove God's existence is when you experience his love and care for you personally. And to kind of summarize all of that, chapter 6, verse 28. You don't got to flip there. I'll read it to you. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Do you see what's happening there? They're asking him, like, hey, what's the stuff we got to do? Tell us, like, how we can please you and follow you. And they're, they're kind of, like, trying to get it done. And then Jesus is like, you just got to believe. You just got to trust. But here's the deal. Belief is work. You got to work at it because you believe a lot of things that aren't true. You got to daily give your life to that. So real quick, let me like tell you about what that has looked like in my life. So the doubts that I've struggled with are, is like the suffering question of like why suffering exists in the world, why I've gone through it, why people I love have gone through it. But here's what I've realized as I've asked that question is that I'm like a four-year-old that's just smart enough to ask really big questions and not smart enough to understand the answers. And, and when you're trying to sort of figure out suffering, you're like that four-year-old. There is an answer. There is a reason. And there's even some things we can point to in the Bible that will help explain it. But at the end of the day, it's a mystery. But God, he's got it. He knows. And so the question for me, isn't anymore, why does suffering exist? Or, or can I figure out like all of the purpose in that? Here's the question for me. Is Jesus trustworthy? Can I believe him when he says that he can use suffering even for my good? That he's there, that he's real, and that he cares? And here's the answer to that is over and over again in my life, he's proven to me that he's trustworthy. And historically, he's proven to be trustworthy because he died on a cross for you. If there's anything in the world that can prove to you that you can trust Jesus, it's that. We don't know why we suffer, but we do know that he's good and that he'll walk with us through the suffering. For some of you are doubting his goodness, and and, and I've been there. You, 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 it's hard for you to believe that God's actually with you or you're doubting that he wants what's best for you. Here's my question for you. Are you humble enough to let other people into that? Here's one of the biggest lies of Satan, that you have to walk through your doubts and your frustrations and your sins alone. He wants to isolate you. Are you willing to actually put down your guard, let people see that you're not perfect, stop playing the show, and just tell them what's going on in your life? Are you willing to let people walk through it with you? That's your connection group, by the way. Invest in it. Be honest about it. If you're not in a connection group, get in one. Remember what God has done for you. Okay, so every Tuesday or Wednesday-ish, I have my kind of weekly freak out. Okay, so it's not like, I don't like completely lose it, but at some point in the week, I typically get overwhelmed by the amount of stuff I was supposed to do that I haven't done yet, and I just sort of panic. Okay, so I had that as I was prepping this message. And here's what, my, here's what I wanted, is I wanted to just keep going, like just keep working. I've got, I've got people to meet with, I've got all this stuff to do, right? But I was, 
I wasn't believing in my soul that Jesus wanted what was good for me. I was frustrated. I was, I, I was angry. I was self-dependent instead of depending on him. And so this is what I did. I walked away from the stuff that I had to do, and I took a nap. And then I walked outside, and I picked up some leaves, and I smelled them. And I thought fall was awesome. And I walked around. And then I went back to my house, and I watched a little bit of Netflix. Not like a lot of Netflix, because that's definitely sinful, but like a little bit of Netflix, that's fine. Um, and, and here's what that was for me. It was remembering again that God was good. And here's what you don't need from me. You don't need a perfect sermon. Some of you are like waiting to meet with me and it's been like too long and I'm, I'm sorry. And yeah, we could have met up during that time, right? Like, yeah, this sermon probably should have been shorter than it is as I'm looking at my clock. Okay, but what you didn't need from me in that moment was for me to be sort of this perfect person. What you need from me is for me to love Jesus, to believe him, to trust him, to every day fight to believe that he's got a better life for me than the one that I want to create for myself. And I wasn't believing that in the moment. And so I just chilled out and tried to remember that God is God and that everything is fine. And I came back to belief in him. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me tell you the secret of Christianity. Just keep showing up. Just don't give up. Keep coming back to up on you. And here's his promise to you, that if you keep on believing, he'll never give up on you. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for that. Um, I love that truth that you'll never let us go, that if we trust you, You'll never let us walk away from you because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on you. And that's an awesome thing. But Jesus, teach us to believe. Not just like in the big stuff and intellectual arguments or whatever, but in the practical stuff, in the, in the daily stuff. Help us to wake up tomorrow and to remember that you're good and that you love us, and that we can enjoy that truth. Help us to choose, when we're in the middle of doubt, help us to choose to trust you instead of trusting ourselves. You've got a way better track record at being good to me than I do at being good to me. And so help me to remember that. Help us to remember that. And we're excited to just be with you tonight. We love you. Amen.